Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, bless Your Word this morning. Lord, bless it to our hearts, to our minds, Father. We pray for understanding in our souls. And we pray, Father, for revelation in our hearts. And we ask that You will open up before us this wonderful truth, this glorious reality. In Jesus' name, Amen. I will never forget the first time we went up that mountainside. Karin Carmel is what it's called, the Horn of Carmel. It's on the southeastern side of Mount Carmel in Israel. Cheryl and I were on a bus with a bunch of pastors on a pastor tour of Israel, and we we rode up that that hillside, slowly making our way up to the top, and then we, we stopped and came to a small parking lot of a small Carmelite church. And we piled out of the bus and walked up a a, a small incline to a small grotto of trees. In the midst of the grotto, there is a statue of the prophet Elijah. Because there on that side of the mountain is where Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 18 tells that amazing story. Where fire came down from heaven and, and licked up the sacrifice and all of the water around it that Elijah had called for. And the site is called the Mukraka. Because Mukraka means the burning place. So we made our way up that hill. We, we saw the statue. Hey Elijah, how's it going? And then we continued on into the little church. Up a staircase of stone and out onto a large flat terrace. And I was not expecting what I next beheld. And that was a remarkable, breathtaking valley. We found ourselves staring out across the Jezreel Valley. You know it better by the name Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo. Two things struck me on my very first visit to Israel. The first was how small the country was. From top to bottom, how truly tiny. It's about the size of New Jersey. And you see that even as you travel about, how quickly you get from one place to the next. But the second thing that struck me on that first venture and every one since is how great the Valley of Megiddo. It is absolutely huge. It is breathtaking. Napoleon once stood there and looked out upon that valley before what would become a great defeat. And he claimed all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. He was amazed by what he saw. By the way, all the armies of the world will amass their forces on that vast plain. The Bible is clear about this. Megiddo is the great field of battle at the very end of this age. Daniel 11.45 says he, referring to Antichrist, He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. The prophet Joel records the Lord God saying, chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16 says, And they gathered them together 
to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megeddon. Mount Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo. So there in that place, and I remember standing there and looking out at this vast plain, on that field, all the nations of the world will gather for war. And some, at the end of that war, when all of the rebellion is put down, some will be ushered into the kingdom, nations that is, and some will not. Some will cease to exist from the place, from the planet, never to be remembered. This is not judgment day, however. Don't mix up the two. Armageddon is not judgment day. The final judgment of individuals, that comes much later. But that battle on the valley of Megiddo, and that return of Jesus in that moment, that will be a judgment of nations. And what happens there, one of the reasons I think I was so overwhelmed, and I remember thinking this at the time, was that this vast valley that stretched out farther than the eye could see would be filled, bridled deep with blood. Revelation chapter 14 verse 20 tells us that, gives us that picture. Blood up to the horse's bridles. Now that doesn't mean they'll be swimming in blood, but you can imagine horses marching, riding across that valley in this vast warfare and the blood of all those slain splashing up as high as the bridles on the horses. It's one thing to read about it in Scripture. It's another thing to see that valley and realize how serious this truly will be. It's an amazing sight, a huge vista, but there's a greater one. There is a greater panorama, a higher, more breathtaking height that doesn't look out on the field of blood and judgment, but over the vast panorama of salvation and eternity. That if we were to able to walk up some little steps and stand out on the terrace, that's what I invite you to do this morning. Stand on the terrace with me. The terrace of the Word of God. And let's look out at the grander view, which is this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A truth that stretches beyond anything we can imagine. Further than the eye can see. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. When we began our study of Paul's God-breathed letter to the followers of Jesus at Rome, I compared, and you may remember this, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, to the Malarium Aureum, which is the golden milestone. Do you remember that teaching on that? We, we talked about how Romans 1, 16 and 17 are like the hub of the letter. The Malarium Aureum, that ancient monument that was the hub of all roads leading into and out of Rome. And to me, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is that hub for this letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the hub of the letter. But if that's the hub of the letter, Romans chapter 8 is the height of the letter. This is the apex. This is what we could call the high point of everything that Paul is getting at here. It comes to a climax in Romans chapter 8. Now we get into Romans 9, 10, and 11, and Paul will discuss Israel and God's plan for Israel that is parallel with God's plan for the church. And we'll get there. 
Ironically, just about when I return from Israel this time. So we'll be talking about that. And then after that, Paul gives instruction and understanding and explanation for how to live as believers, as followers in Jesus. But Romans 8 is the high point. Romans 8 is the highest peak. And we get to view it now, this morning, next week, Wednesday night, and we may have to roll on after our group returns from Israel a little more in chapter 8 because there's so much here. Not only do we go to the heights of salvation, but we plumb the depths of biblical doctrine in this remarkable chapter. Which is why we're only doing one verse this morning, because I don't have time to get to all that is here. We have been climbing literally to this vantage point all along. There's a a beautiful hike that you can take uh, near Mount Rainier. It's a Spray Falls Trail. On the northwest uh, flank of Rainier, you can go up this hike. I remember going on it when I first moved to the northwest a long time ago in my first youth ministry. We had a youth deacon who, he was a major outdoorsman, fisherman, hiker. He killed me. And he wanted to go on this day hike, so Cheryl and I followed him on this hike. And it was beautiful, but we went up these switchbacks, back and forth and back and forth in the trees. And, it, and, and the water was flowing around us and the rivers and, and everything, but we couldn't see a whole lot of sky. The trees were so tall and we were pretty locked in. And we continued to hike and hike and hike. And we went further and further up until all of a sudden we came out to this vista where we could see that Mowich Glacier, is what it's called. Again, on the northwest flank of Mount Rainier. It was like stepping out into the light, and that vista was remarkable. A beautiful place to stop. We had lunch there, and just looked out over the mountain. And it's like that in Romans, that from chapters 1 through chapter 7, Paul's giving explanation and understanding and doctrinal teaching, and he's leading us up these switchbacks, getting us closer and closer and closer, and then all of a sudden, chapter 8, it just opens out. And we see where he's been going all along. Everything we've read so far culminates here. As a matter of fact, when he starts off the chapter and he says, therefore, typically we'll go back a sentence or two. But honestly, to understand the therefore of chapter 8 verse 1, you've got to go back to chapter 1. And you've got to walk all the way through those seven chapters because it's all the build up to this, therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, now he doesn't say, and please get this, there's not quite so much condemnation. He doesn't say, well, this is kind of a plea bargain, you know, you've pleaded down to a lesser charge. See, that's what some doctrines, even in Christendom today, still teach. You plead down to a lesser charge, that's what the cross does, but you've got to serve out the rest of your time in purgatory. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's Word is very clear. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. Zip. Zilch. Zero. Nada. Fill in the blank. No condemnation. You see, we haven't moved from a bad situation to an improved situation. We have come into total transformation. And the more I think about this, and the more Paul has led us up to this point, the more radical truly it sounds, even from where my Christianity has been. I've prayed a lot about this because I have actually said to the Lord many times over the last few weeks, Father, this is radical. 
And he says, "Uh uh-huh. God, this is a paradigm shift. That's right. This is huge, my friends. I've heard this verse a million times. I never thought about the depths of what has been said here. No condemnation. No judgment. Period. There is none. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life. Exactly what Jake was talking about at communion. We have passed out of death to true life. No condemnation. No, the word in the Greek is katakrima. Katakrima. Washingtonians immediately think, oh, a new handcrafted coffee drink. (laughs) Have you tried the katakrima? No, katakrima means judgment against. Judgment against anyone by God, listen, is eternal. Katakrima is an eternal condition, an eternal state. Because God must judge absolutely. You see, He's absolutely perfect. So judgment from sinful man to holy God is absolute. But from our observation post this morning, as we look out over chapter 8, we see the vastness of eternity with no condemnation, no katakrima, no judgment against. It's gone. It is taken away. And when is it taken away? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Not just no condemnation, which in and of itself is stunning. But it is right now. The Greek word is noon, and that doesn't mean noon as in tomorrow at 12. Noon means now. It also is translated henceforth. It's not a word I use a lot, but I like it. Henceforth. There is no condemnation from this point forward. No condemnation. In other words, there was before. Henceforth, there is no more. What is the dividing line? What is the now? It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's when you give your life to Jesus from that point forward. Henceforth, there is no condemnation. But truly, there was condemnation before. Absolutely there was. Judgment. Wrath. Because of the condition we were in. But Jesus, Titus 2.14 tells us, gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Not a few, not most, not a lot. Every lawless deed. To purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live in what I would call the now of grace. The now of grace. Zealous for good deeds because such a good deed has already been done in you. The motivation for all good deeds is not trying to prove myself righteous. It's that I have been made righteous through Jesus at the cross. The motivation is remarkable. How can the forgiven not forgive? How can the comforted not bring comfort? 
How can the reconciled not be ministers of reconciliation? If we fully comprehend that there is therefore now no condemnation, how can the blessed not spend a lifetime of blessing? I came home from being out last week. Many of you know I was in California with my brother, taking a little vacation time. Surprising my dad on his 80th birthday, and he was surprised. He had no idea. We gave him a heart attack after we got out of the hospital. The rest of the week was great. (laughs) But I got back after that week and saw Cheryl and everything was good. And then on Friday, she says, Honor Marie and I need to talk to you. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. We sat down together and she said, we have the opportunity to have a foreign exchange student from Belgium come stay with us for four months, August through December. I said, are you nuts? Are you unaware of what happens in this house every day? This is already a circus. And Cheryl said, well, yeah, well, then one more animal is not going to make any difference. I'm like, I understand that. But our life already can be really wild and crazy and insane. Why, why would you do that? And I was an absolute no on Friday. And I said, I will sleep on it. Oh, and the other thing was they had to know by Saturday. Thanks for the time. (laughs) So I said, I'll sleep on it. I slept on it. Woke up the next morning. And I was more a no Saturday morning than I was Friday night. Now, I hadn't had my tea yet, but I was still a serious no. I had breakfast. I was still a no. And I had all the reasons lined up why it's just not a good idea for us to add a person. And by the way, this foreign exchange student uh, is really kind of a non-believer. Her family has a Catholic, French Catholic background, but she, they never, she listed on her thing, how often do you attend church or services? Never. So Cheryl's like, we could have some influence there. I'm like, stop that. (laughs) And I was studying, then I sat down to study. I just kind of thought, I'm going to put that out of my mind. I've been studying through and thinking about, therefore there is no condemnation and what this means for us. And, And I'm just jotting down in my notes, and I jotted down these questions. How can the forgiven not forgive? How can the comforted not bring comfort? How can the reconciled not be a minister of reconciliation? And I'm just in the flow and I'm listening to the Lord and I'm jotting down what I'm hearing and I hear, how can the blessed not spend a lifetime blessing? (laughs) So I told Cheryl, go ahead. We'll do what we can to bless. If I end up in Fairfax Hospital, you all will understand why. But really, and it's the question my wife asks me from time to time, and I hate the question, but it's absolutely true. What are we here for? Why are we here? How can we, who have no condemnation, not shout it from the vista across the mountaintops? How can we not be those who tell the world this? Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no condemnation. Now, on the contrary, How cursed is the person whose transgression is not forgiven? 
You ever had a relational problem where you stood in unforgiveness from another? It's not a fun place to be. When you know someone is holding something against you and will not let it go, that hurts. That's hard to walk out. And that's the world outside of Jesus. Cursed. Because they are in the place of unforgiveness. I was there. To be in the place where my sin is uncovered? You know, in the dark of night when no one can see, that's one thing. But the next morning when the sun is bright and everybody knows, that's completely different. The psalmist says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But my friends, when you are outside of Jesus, in your spirit there is deceit. You don't see the truth clearly. It's a deceiving spirit that says, you're fine. Life is good. Everything's rosy. You don't need the Lord. That is a deceiving spirit. And that is a heart that is self-deceived. The millennial generation, which is the generation right now of 18 to 34 year olds as of 2016. The millennial generation is characterized, I'm not saying this is you if you're in that age range, but it is characterized by a fiercely independent, self-sure, unattached, privileged mentality. These are the words that, that are drawn out by sociologists as they look at the millennials. Unattached in that they're not interested in church membership anywhere. And, and self-assured in that we have the largest population of nuns, that is, non-belief, no belief, no attachment, than we've had in, well, in American history, among the millennials. Unattached and self-sure and independent, and many of them deceiving themselves if they don't know Jesus. And it really doesn't matter what generation or culture you are. If you're outside of Christ, you're deceiving yourself. You are keeping yourself from the truth. Suppressing, as Paul said, the truth. I heard this this last week as well. Kirsten Powers. Some of you know who Kirsten Powers is. She's a news commentator. She writes for USA Today. Sometimes she appears as a as one of the liberals on Fox News. You know, to try and balance it out. They'll usually have like 12 conservatives and a liberal to balance it out. <laughs> Kirsten Powers who I actually have great respect for, though I completely disagree with, but she's very articulate, very smart gal, and I heard that she had given her life to Jesus. Like, really? In her own words, from Christianity Today, uh, back in 2013, she describes her conversion. She describes how it happened, but she said this, I sometimes hear Christians talk about how terrible life must be for atheists, but our lives were not terrible. Life actually seemed pretty wonderful, filled with opportunity and good conversation and privilege. I know now that it was not as wonderful as it could have been, but you don't know what you don't know. How could I have missed something I didn't think existed? And maybe what we Christians need to understand better is that the non-Christian world does not think itself lacking at all. The atheist, the non-believer, the agnostic, they don't think they're missing anything. Why? Because they are self-deceived. You don't know what you don't know. So you can't respond to that. If you think something doesn't exist or likely doesn't exist, then you don't live as though He does. And so she describes that beautifully. And I think it's the reason that Paul opens out this letter with three chapters on condemnation. It's not to be heavy-handed, but it's, it's to try to break through the hardness of the heart. 
to help someone understand why this issue of condemnation, of judgment against the world, why it exists. And what Paul goes through and explains about people who fool themselves, who are self-deceived. Now, once you've given your life to Jesus, who wants to go back to the old life? Who truly wants to go back to the first three chapters of Romans? As we talked about, those three chapters, if you are in Christ, they're not for you. They describe the condition prior to Jesus. Prior to salvation. Who wants to go back? And I'm not talking about going back and studying it again. Who wants to go back to God's wrath? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 They suppress the truth? That means in their spirit there is deception. Who wants God to hand us over once again to our desires? Anyone want to be handed over to a lifestyle that is downgraded from His beautiful original intent? Anyone want to be handed over to a depraved mind that lacks understanding or wisdom or clarity or direction in this world? Who wants to go back to condemnation? Peter puts it this way, and I think very eloquently, as only a fisherman can. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, which is Proverbs 26.11, a dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Who wants to go back? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There was before, there is no more. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm belaboring this point intentionally here. That we would understand that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest statement of the cancellation of condemnation in the entire Bible. This is the place where the Holy Spirit deems proper to say, listen, it's all over. It's all gone. It is all behind you. He begins this chapter, note this, with no condemnation. And then throughout the chapter, he continues by talking about what we might call spiritual transportation. What do you mean? I mean... How we walk according to the Spirit. Our spiritual transportation or transformation or any Asian you want to add in there that fits. That's fine with me. But no condemnation. Spiritual transformation. And then finally, note this, he'll end the chapter with no separation. Listen, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in a marvelous place. The vista is breathtaking. So why do I sometimes feel defeated? So why do so many Christians strive as if still condemned? 
Listen, you, you got to get this. And this is a review for you Bible students who were here a week ago Wednesday. But I think there's something we misunderstand that keeps us in the place of defeat rather than in the place of victory. In chapter 7 rather than in chapter 8. In his letter to the church at Corinth, which he wrote prior to this letter to Romans, I know it comes later in the New Testament, but he wrote it before, Paul describes three people, and we need to understand these three different people. The three people are, as we talked about a week ago Wednesday, the natural man. This is a phrase Paul uses, the natural man. He's talking about the unsaved person. That is someone who does not have faith in Jesus, does not know anything about church, they are completely disconnected, they're just living life. The unsaved person, the natural man. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually understood or discerned. And the truth is, if you're not born again, you ain't going to get it. That's what Kirsten Powers was talking about. She's like, no, life was fine. It was wonderful. It's better now. But at the time, I didn't know. Because she couldn't spiritually appraise things prior to coming to Jesus. Prior to her eyes being opened. And suddenly, you come out of the forest and into the view. Suddenly, you can see. But the natural man cannot. The natural woman cannot. You have to be born again. Now, there are two other uh, types of people that Paul talks about as well. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, talking to the church at Corinth, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, or carnal men, as to infants in Christ. So there's the natural man, which is just the non-believer, and then there's the spiritual man and the carnal man. And here's the thing. The spiritual man and the carnal man are both believers. They are both followers of Jesus. Both are saved. Both filled churches throughout the world. And as a matter of fact, I can be the spiritual man and the carnal man on the same day. I have the ability to either be spiritual or be carnal. I'm still a follower of Jesus, but I can fall into either category. The carnal Christian is the one who, while saved, gets stuck in the flesh. And it may be someone who is living stuck in the flesh constantly, or it may be something happens in your life that causes you to get kind of stuck in the flesh for a few minutes, or an hour, or a week. The carnal man and the spiritual man are the same in that they both believe in Jesus, but the carnal gets stuck. The carnal man loves the idea of being dead to sin. The carnal woman loves, embraces the idea of being dead to the law. But the carnal person still struggles to live to Christ. I asked the question a week and a half ago. How many of us can relate to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7? To the civil war that he describes going on in the soul. That war between fleshly carnal living and spiritual living. That battle. How many can relate to that? And all of our hands were up. Mine as well. There's not a Christian on the planet that doesn't understand what it's like to be in that raging battle between carnality and spirituality. Wanting to be spiritual, but finding ourselves carnal. 
Struggling between the two. Listen to how Paul describes it. Back in Romans 7 verse 21. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Or as the translation truly is, wretched man. Me. And he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin, and that is the carnal man. Trying to serve the law of God, but finding ourselves serving the law of sin. Struggling back and forth. Dealing with this issue of carnality, though we believe. Now, some believe, and I would agree with them, that Paul is speaking autobiographically here. In Romans chapter 7. He's saying, look, I get it. I've been here. I've had this struggle. And he may even be saying, and sometimes I still do. You know, on a bad day, when my wife's asking me to have a foreign exchange student. (laughs) But listen to this and understand this. Paul is not justifying this civil war in the life of a Christian. He's not saying it's okay. He's acknowledging this. But he's not saying, oh well, bummer. See, if he was, then we would not have chapter 8. We would skip right to chapter 9 and be left in the fact that we're just going to struggle as we go. As if it were some kind of extenuating circumstance we just have to deal with. Oh, I know you're saved. I know you. You know you're, you're trying to be spiritual, but the carnality. You're just going to be fighting this battle your whole life. That's just the way it is. Oh well, bummer. And that is the attitude of many in the church. And it is a self-defeatist attitude, my friends. And it is not to what we have been called. Paul is saying there is freedom and there is relief and there is life. Get out of chapter seven and find life in chapter eight. Now you can live in chapter 7 and be saved. You can fight the battle of carnality your whole life and be saved. And that's cool. And you'll be loved and you'll be accepted and you'll be forgiven by Jesus as you struggle through because He understands and because He is so gracious. But what He invites you to do is get out of the 7th chapter and move on up, as it were, into chapter 8. How do we do that? What is the difference between the carnal and the spiritual believer? Between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8? And it's very simple. The Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. In chapter 7, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit one time. In chapter 8, well let me read the verse. Romans 7, verse 6, we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter, that is, of the law. That's chapter 7, one time. In chapter 8, Paul refers to the Spirit 17 times. That's the difference. 17 times implicitly, or or explicitly, and then implicitly he says he two or three times talking about the Spirit, so he talks about the Spirit even more than that. Remarkable. Look at this, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. 
However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Notice that interchangeable. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, all the same Spirit. There is one Spirit. And he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. We'll get to that next week. Verse 13, he says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And so that's why Christians often say, I just got to die to myself. I got to die to myself. And we keep trying to die to ourselves because we keep living in the flesh. But then Paul says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for, verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The difference between victorious, glorious living and the civil war of the soul is the Holy Spirit. And you can choose where you want to spend your life. And I won't judge you for it because Jesus won't judge you for it. He's going to love you through it. But there are an awful lot of suffering, carnal Christians where Jesus says, if you will come and drink living water, if you will seek My Spirit, if you will walk in the Spirit, that civil war junk of chapter 7, you will not find yourself dealing with that. Now again, I confess to you, in my life, that civil war springs up from time to time. And when it does, it's beginning more and more to serve to me as a reminder that I'm not walking in the Spirit when I'm fighting the battle of the flesh. So rather than fight the battle and dig in and build bunkers, i got to get in the Spirit. I have to come to the Spirit of God. Why do you do that? Well, first you just start asking Him. You pray to the Spirit. You pray in the Spirit. We'll get there as we move on in to Romans chapter 8 further. Now, something else you need to see back in verse 1, and you may not be able to see it depending on what translation you're reading. I would say that there are 18 explicit mentions of the Spirit if it weren't for the fact that there's a superfluous sentence in the first verse. What are you talking about, Rick? Back in verse 1, i got to make a correction. For those of you who love to read out of the King James translation, which is an excellent translation, a little hard to understand because it's so Elizabethan, I get it. Lots of these and thous and thouforths and those and stuff. It's a little difficult, but it's an excellent, very um, literal translation. However, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is an add-on in the King James translation. Here's how it reads. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now that's where it ends in the New American Standard Bible. That's it. But in the King James it continues. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What's wrong with that? That sounds good to me. The problem is that that sentence does not exist in verse 1 in any of the early Greek manuscripts, nor is it attested to by any of the early fathers of the church. It was literally scribed in later. So are you saying that the King James is unbiblical? No, because that same exact sentence is down in verse 4. 
You can read it in verse 4. Look at that. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But what the King James does is take that line and move it up and add it. So it's twice at the end of verse 1 and again in verse 4. This is not just a theologian's interest. This is huge. Paul, when he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, stops right there. He has to. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the most learned men assure us that it is no part of the original text. I cannot just now go into the reasons for this conclusion, but they are very good and solid. The oldest copies are without it, the versions do not sustain it, and the church fathers who quoted abundance of Scripture never quote that sentence. So what? I mean, so what's the big deal? It's in verse 1 or verse 4, it's still all in the Bible, right? Listen, if we add it in to the end of verse 1, it puts a requirement on us for no condemnation. Suddenly now, no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So, you got to do that. And if that verse was there, if that sentence was at the end of verse 1 in chapter 8, it would tell me that everyone who from time to time gets stuck in chapter 7 is out. If you're not walking according to the Spirit, you're condemned. That's why Christians feel defeated. Because I have these struggles from time to time. And so I I start to think, because I'm struggling, I'm condemned. No, you're not condemned, so stop struggling. Move on into glorious victory. Move on into no condemnation. Put it this way, while it's true that now we do walk according to the Spirit and not in the flesh, it is not a condition of our salvation. It's a consequence of being in Christ Jesus. Kenneth Woost puts it this way. He says, Paul does not base his assertion of no condemnation to the saint upon the saint's conduct, but upon the saint's position in Christ. This is what's radical for me. And I don't know if it is for you, but man, it is, it is tagging me big time right now in my life. That there are no pre-requirements, no pre-conditions. That God really did do it all. And there is nothing I can do to add to that. Not in the least. I've preached that before, but I don't think I ever fully got that before. I had a rollicking conversation this last Sunday, a week ago, following a sermon that I heard at my folks' church on baptism. If I could just learn to keep my big mouth shut, I probably wouldn't have had such a rollicking conversation. However... This pastor gave a series of reasons why we should be baptized. He, he gave five things, five reasons from the Bible why we should be baptized. Four of them were right on. The first one I had a big problem with. And it's because of what Paul's telling us in Romans. The first one, he said, we should be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And I went, wait a minute. No. That does not sound right. And I said so to a family member, and thus began the rollicking conversation. That's a precondition. We should be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that sounds good. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? Not for you. 
Oh, it's in the Bible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Let me give you the context. Jesus arrived from the Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, that's talking about the baptism of Jesus, not the baptism of Rick. I am not baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was. Jesus was doing all that He would ever ask us to do. He was acting and behaving in perfect and complete righteousness, fulfilling the law in Himself, fulfilling righteousness in Himself, being righteous and true, so that when He died, the perfectly righteous man would be the one who died. That His righteous fulfillment might then be transferred, imputed to me. But I am not baptized to fulfill anything. I am baptized in in response to what He did. He did it, not me. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. My baptism simply signifies I'm in Him. I am in Him. I am drenched by Him. I am submerged with Him. I am covered head to toe. What happens if you're being baptized and your big toe comes out of the water? Come on. (laughs) Two weeks ago, didn't we talk about this? That's the symbol. It is not the substance of what God did. Romans 6, where Paul talks about we are immersed with Jesus. We are baptized with Jesus. He's talking about the substance of which that is just a symbol. An important symbol, but a symbol nonetheless. And this is why I see such beauty, such a panoramic vista here when I stand on the edge of Romans 8 and peer in. Because in it we realize that Jesus enables us because we are now in Christ and that is the key. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was before. There is no more. And secondly, there's no claim of sin for those who are in. There is no claim of sin for those who are in. Question for you this morning. Are you in? I'm all in. I want to be further in. I just want to keep going in, you know? Are you in? Well, that sounds kind of exclusive. Sounds kind of Christian exclusive. Closed doors of a church. Insiders and outsiders. Well, it is exclusive. In fact, it's as exclusive as eight people. Eight people. Back in Genesis chapter 6, I'll just read this to you. You don't have to go there unless you just really want to, but that's fine. Romans chapter 6 verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. By the way, the word pitch in the Hebrew, kafar, it comes from the root word that is translated, get this, atonement. Yom Kippur. Cover it with kafar. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. 
It is a covering. The pitch was a covering for the ark in the same way that the blood of the Lamb was atonement, a covering for the sins of the people, in the same way that the blood of Jesus is more than a covering, it is propitiation for us. And so he said, thank you. He said, cover it all over with pitch. Whether or not God intended the Hebrew wordplay, and I think He did, the ark remains an amazing picture of salvation. And not just salvation for one, but salvation for all of mankind. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Noah and his wife, you know her name, right? Mrs. Noah. And the three sons and their wives, eight people. How is that all of mankind? Hey, in the ark, God saved all of mankind. You realize the grace of the ark in the flood? Do you understand what really happened here? Someone says, wasn't the entire earth destroyed? Isn't that judgment? Yes. But all humanity was saved by what God did. We are here today, in this place today, because God saved us in the ark. He didn't have to do that. He could have just wiped out the whole world and started over. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.20, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now he goes on and says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People hear that verse and they say, well, he said baptism saves you. Yeah, in the same way that the ark saved Noah. Did the ark actually save Noah? No, God did that. The ark was simply the vessel or the means that that salvation happened. Baptism similar. The water doesn't save you, but it is a means of outwardly communicating immersion into Jesus Christ. And so here's this great picture of the ark, covered all over in pitch. Listen to this, uh, Genesis 6.18, God says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. Enter the ark, he says, over in chapter 7. Genesis 7.1, he says, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Down in Genesis 7, verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Down in chapter 16 of Genesis 7. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded him and, listen to this, and the Lord closed it behind him. Which I love. Because that's what happens when you are born again. The translators add the word it. Thinking that what what is being talked about here is that the Lord closed the door of the ark behind Noah and his family. They went in and God went and shut them in tight. But that's not what specifically the Bible says. It specifically says the Lord closed behind him. The Lord closed behind him. That's what happens when you're born again. The Lord closes behind you. He shuts off the old life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Like David says in Psalm 139, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He's right. No one can attain to it. But God can do it. And He has. And Noah and his family, my friends, they were not saved by building the ark. That didn't save them. They weren't saved by claiming to be archists. While all those outside were anarchists. <laughs> Noah and his family were not saved by standing in close proximity to the ark or bowing down to the ark or worshiping the ark. They were saved because they were in. They were in the ark and God closed behind them. It was an absolutely exclusive club of eight people who gained access by taking God at His word. Eight people who believed. Well, I don't like that it's so exclusive. It is exclusive. But the invitation is absolutely inclusive. And it was with Noah and the ark. It had gone out. The invitation to be saved and to have faith in God and to trust Him had been going on for at least three generations prior to Noah. And we've been over this. Remember Enoch was a prophet, seventh generation from Adam, and he had a son, and he named him Methuselah. Which was not because he had a bad head cold or something that day. What should we name the son? Methuselah. Excuse me. Gesundheit. No, he named him Methuselah because it means in his death it shall come. What? The flood. Enoch named his son to prophesy of the coming flood that would not come for three full generations. Noah starts building the ark. 120 years it takes him to build a boat. How long does it take to build a boat? Why did it take him so long? They're building an ark right now. Uh, this ark exhibit, the Genesis Project, people are doing this thing. They've been working on it for about a year. It's almost done. 120 years? Noah, come on. What's the, what's the problem? What was he doing? Preaching. Prophesying, giving the all-exclusive invitation to an exclusive cruise, if you want to call it that. The ark was the invitation to salvation. But the salvation was only for those who are in. Are you in? Are you in Christ Jesus? Now listen, Spurgeon said one other thing I want to share. He said, it is no pleasant task to us to have to speak of this matter. But who are we that we should ask for pleasant tasks? What God has witnessed in Scripture is the sum and substance of what the Lord's servants are to testify to the world. And here it is, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you have not escaped condemnation. Therefore, there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in? If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of His, and I beg you to be if you're not. But if you are, what there was before, there is no more condemnation. And there is no claim of sin for those who are in. Believers don't wallow in chapter 7, live in chapter 8. 
Live a life of victory, a life of glory, a life in the Spirit. Instead of fighting on the field of blood. There are those who will fight on the field of blood and it is going to run bridle deep for 200 miles. What a picture of rebellion and where it ends up. If you feel on the outs with God at all, His invitation is again all-inclusive. And Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 3, If you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think we'll leave it there this morning. Let's stand together. Jesus prayed for you on the night of His betrayal. Which is an amazing thought in and of itself. That while He knew what was about to happen to Him, He prayed for you and for me 2,000 years later. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of His apostles, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, we come asking you to lead us out of civil war and into the place of the Spirit, where there is peace with God and peace of God, where the peace of Christ reigns supreme over all of us together. We pray, Father, that You will show us what it means truly to walk in the Spirit and not in the battle of carnality. That You will bring us into full recognition that we are of those who have no condemnation. Father, may we no longer wallow in bitterness and self-defeat and depression and sorrow and striving, but instead in the Spirit. I pray, Father, for a fresh anointing on our fellowship, a fresh outpouring of Your Spirit among us, that we may walk and live free. And in so doing, in that place, in Christ Jesus, all the world may know, Lord, as You prayed, that God sent You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.